Everybody and welcome to the April 7th, 2017 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Kazuti. Thank you very much for joining us. I swear if we had the legal team to show the first five minutes before the tapes of a roll, we would win Emmy after Emmy after Emmy. It would just be fantastic. Let's get a quick take on 18-year-old Manuel High School senior Tay Anderson gaining national attention this week for joining the race for the Denver Public School Board. If elected in November, Anderson would occupy one of the four open seats, replacing incumbent Rachel Espiritu. Patty Calhoun from Westward I, I realize an 18-year-old running for a school board is somewhat of a long shot, but it seems to be, you probably get a lot of good free press, and it would shake up the competition. What effect do you think Tay Anderson's going to have on the race? I think it'll make people more interested in the race, and I wish him all the luck, and I hope he's getting extra credit in civics for this run. <laughs> you certainly like to think so. David Copel from Independence Institute and DU Law School. What chances do you give this upstart? Some chance. I think there's plenty of people who would say that uh, the DPS, uh, how many people graduate from there after 12 or 13 years of taxpayer-funded education, able to read and write at a mediocre level, not enough. So somebody who's been through the system recently and understands it brings a, a different perspective from the, you know, the typical parent or teacher's union uh, perspective that the most school board seats are, are held by. So if he's, got, he's got a chance to show that he can bring something new to the uh, table. Eric Sonnen, political analyst. What do you think about that student perspective? Can that give something needed to this DPS board? It could, and it's certainly something to campaign on. Uh, he's an interesting guy by all accounts, a very, uh, even before he announced his candidacy here, student body president, very accomplished young guy, active in the Young Democrats, I believe. Uh, and let's not forget the person he's running against, Rochelle Espiritu, who wasn't elected either. She was appointed to a vacancy, so she hasn't uh, faced the voters either. It will make it a race that the press covers where otherwise it would probably be a snoozer. Natasha Gardner, articles editor of 5280 Magazine. It's going to be kind of tough for his competitors to really be tough on him. He's 18 years old, and he can't go with the normal uh, attack ads in a, in a brutal school board election. Does that give him a puncher's chance? Uh, perhaps, but I think it's still politics, and if they need a hit, they need a hit. But I think the thing that's really exciting for me is that every generation seems to complain about the younger generations not caring about civics as much, and you've been hearing a lot of that recently. So whatever has gotten into Mr. Anderson's brain through his education and through his personal life, as a reporter, I just want to quiz him more. I want to find out what motivated him and see if we can use that and apply it to other students his age. I think Michael Corleone would appreciate your first uh, part of the analysis. It's, it's not business. It's not personal. It's just business. I like that. <laughs> the United States Senate confirmed U.S. Supreme Court nominee Neil Gorsuch earlier today with a 54 to 45 vote. The confirmation followed Senate Democrats' attempt to filibuster the confirmation, prompting Republicans to deploy so-called the nuclear option, lowering the amount of votes needed to confirm Supreme Court nominees going forward. Meanwhile, U.S. Senator Michael Bennett announced he was against the filibuster effort but voted no on the Gorsuch nomination. Patty, the seemed that Michael Bennett, again, found a way to have his cake and eat it, too. He didn't support the filibuster uh, effort. He still voted no. 
it, it, it seemed like a, a good situation for him riding a very, very thin balance beam politically, but did he get away with it? I'm not sure he did. I mean, the interesting thing is, if this was a cause for a nuclear, I mean, we are going to have so many other nominees that really deserve to be bombed before this one. So Michael um, Bennett, in this case, you know, he'd worked, he had connections through Anschutz to Neil Gorsuch. I mean, Neil Gorsuch is going to be probably the best judge we're going to get from Donald Trump as a nominee. And it looks like Donald Trump will probably have the opportunity to make many more nominees. I think this is one that the D Democrats shouldn't have filibustered. They should have saved that so that we didn't have the nuclear option. And I was actually surprised. I thought Bennett might go for him because really, if you were looking at a judge with a great legal resume, Gorsuch has it. He may not agree with a lot of what Coloradans, the majority of Coloradans agree with on some issues, but on others, he is a really thoughtful judge. David, do you think Republicans will regret going to the nuclear option, not so much as a political issue in a campaign, but the fact that the Senate goes back and forth? And when Democrats have the Senate and they happen to have a president in office, this option is now off the table. Um, I, I think not, because the if you look at the political, we've only had partisan filibusters over judicial appointments. The first time we had one of those was in 2003, when George A. W. Bush was trying to pe put people like Miguel Estrada on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. And Estrada was filibustered, as a Democratic strategy memo said, because he's Hispanic. He's extremely well qualified, and he's Hispanic, and if we let him get on the D.C. Circuit Court, then he's may end up on the Supreme Court soon after. So they did their partisan filibuster on some Bush nominees. Then Obama was elected, and the Republicans turned around and also did partisan filibusters on some Obama nominees to the D.C. Circuit. And Harry Reid then nuked the filibuster for all appointments other than Supreme Court. Tim Kaine, the vice presidential nominee, said if the Republicans try to filibuster President Hillary Clinton's Supreme Court nominees will nuke the filibuster. So the Republicans had no enduring interest in restraint because they knew as soon as the shoe was on the other foot, uh, the Dems would, would go nuclear. So why not uh, act while you can? Gorsuch is, as Patty said, a superb choice, probably the best choice that uh, the president could have made. And one of the ways that the Democrats' feeble search for bogus talking points was so wrong is that Gorsuch has been a leader in questioning what's called Chevron deference, which is Congress passes the law and then an administrative agency comes up with any interpretation it wants. And as long as it's got some minimal level of plausibility, the courts are supposed to be submissive to that. So it makes the executive branch into the law-making agency, which it's not supposed to be. And the case that Gorsuch raised his concerns in was a case about an illegal alien. And Gorsuch was saying the federal government shouldn't be able to change the rules so much arbitrarily uh, without the consent of Congress and with this, the courts just supposed to be deferential. So Gorsuch, far more so than Merrick Garland, who always goes along with government power, whoever's wielding it, is the best possible check we could have on the growing autocracy uh, that's going on in this country. Eric, did you see the change from 60 votes for confirmation to 51 simply just a sign of our times that polit politics evolves and we're just going to get more partisan nowadays, so trimming that down is just a natural part of this evolution? I think it's one more sad 
sign of our times. Yes, it is a sign of the times. I think the Democrats' ultimate calculation was, yes, we could forego the filibuster this time to preserve that right for the next Trump nominee, but then the Republicans would have just gone nuclear the next time, that the Republicans were pre prepared to go nuclear whenever they needed to go nuclear. The history David recites is largely very correct history. I mean, one feature of, the, of our times these days, Dominic, is what I call situational ethics and feigned moral outrage. And whichever party has the ability to, to pull a power play will do it, and the other side will go into feigned outrage. But the Democrats under Harry Reid played this card. A lot of this animosity dates back to the Teddy Kennedy speech against Robert Bork about Robert Bork's America, which was, I mean, it, it, it had as much American carnage in it as Donald Trump's acceptance speech had in it. Uh, so this, we've been heading down this track for three decades now in terms of the politici politicization of Supreme Court appointments and those confirmation processes. So is it a sad day? Yes, it's a sad day, but it's a sad day, a long time in coming, and neither party can claim any moral high ground here. Real quickly, in terms of Michael Bennett, I've seen pretzels that were a lot less twisted up uh, than how Bennett has handled uh, this particular process. We all opined immediately upon the announcement of the Gorsuch appointment that Michael Bennett was on the hottest of hot seats. I think his calculation was that there was no win in going all in with either side. And he would make himself as inconsequential as possible, wait till the last minute as possible. I do not see how he squares his comments in introducing Gorsuch at the first hearing and talking about how two wrongs never, ever make a right. I believe that's a direct quote. And then yet opposing the filibuster, but, uh, but opposing the nomination in today's confirmation vote. If there's a intellectual logic to it, I'm missing it. And uh, you know, lastly, this is our second Coloradan in the history of the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. So that's not, uh, not nothing, and, and congratulations to Justice Gorsuch. Natasha, let's get back to the, the Bennett point. What do you think Coloradans, his constituents, are going to think of kind of the balance, uh, the, the, the tight walk he made between, the tightrope walk he made, that between not going against the filibuster but also not voting for the Colorado. And it's not just about being a Colorado, but clearly he was trying to have his cake and eat it too. Do constituents remember this? I think they do. I think there's certainly um, a lot of campaigns right now to have people remember this for the next election. In this particular case, though, I don't think I don't think people will vote um, for or against him because of it. Simply because there, the, the, the news cycle in the last few months has been so robust and so. Um, crazy <laughs> that I, I don't think that this will be the last thing that people think of when they get into the voting booth with Bennett. I think that there's going to be a lot more things happening before then. Um, I do think he's probably the most relieved um, senator, perhaps, that this is done, but the most relieved group of people are probably the court themselves, who have been operating since February 2016 without a, a justice. And this gives them an opportunity to go back to their full strength and to continue business as usual. Um, and it will be that. So well it's been a long time since we had a full court. Um, within days of him putting on the robes, he will be looking at a case involving state rights and religion, which is always a controversial co topic in this country. So he's not going to have a lot of time to sort of rest and, and get used to his surroundings. He'll be at work right away.
Colorado's gubernatorial candidate pool grew this week as Arapahoe County District Attorney George Brockler announced his intention to run for the Republican nomination. Subsequently, on the Democratic side, U.S. Representative Ed Perlmutter hinted at also joining the governor's race in a media release teeing up an announcement that he'll make on Sunday. Meanwhile, first quarter finance reports show that Democratic candidate Mike Johnston has already raised $625,000 in campaign funds to date. David, and all of this comes on the heels that we, we think we're going to get an announcement from Kerry Kennedy on Monday. So clearly the Democrats have a crowded field. The Republicans were expecting Walker Stapleton to join George Brockler. Which is going to be the bloodiest primary? Um, on the Democratic side, I, I think, because of the, uh, Brockler, and the, there are other candidates who we, we haven't mentioned, um, uh, were working to get known, and they might have a, a, a chance to, to catch fire. Uh, but I, I heard Brockler on, on KLZ on Wednesday. He was very well-spoken. He's, he's a formidable candidate. Uh, he knows, knows the issues, knows what he wants to talk about, and has a, a, a strong and, and, and very appealing vision. So he may well al almost clear the field uh, on his side. On the Democratic side, you've got three, but just among the ones you mentioned, very well-qualified candidates. I think Mike Johnson is, is Johnson's probably the most centrist, but you know, Ed, Ed Perlmutter has a fantastic record of winning elections in a swing district, uh, partly because of his family ties to the district. It, that, that's an important thing for Congress. I mean, there's lots of Republicans who said, I, I live in this district, I'd like to run, but I'll, no one will ever beat Ed Perlmutter. So the fact that it, that's going to be open in 2018 means a lot. Probably 2018 is a good year for the Democrats to have hopes of retaining it because it's, it's the off cycle for an incumbent president. Um, and, you know, Kerry Kennedy uh, also well regarded as, as, as very intelligent and capable. Uh, so you, you've got three powerhouses on, on that side. Perlmutter is the most senior and experienced of them and certainly has the ability and uh, enjoyment of ripping out his opponent's lungs uh, in races and, and, and getting pretty harsh sometimes more so than the, the facts might really uh, support. But it, it's going to be a, a we're, we're blessed to have four such uh, high-quality candidates. Regardless of what you think of their views, they're all extremely capable. I agree at one point. Uh, Ed Perlmutter does enjoy campaigning. My, my dream matchup has always been to see Mike Kaufman and Ed Perlmutter have to go in a, a statewide because that is a battle royale I think we would enjoy watching, but I don't think we're going to see it this time. Eric, uh, I, first of all, I, I know you shook your head as soon as you heard David say uh, Brockler might clear the field. So we have the Republican side of things and a crazy Democratic side of things. We have Michael Johnston. Uh, there were some reports about breaking records with that fundraising uh, mark. You have Ed Perlmutter clearly not scared of that. Kennedy not scared. Jared Polis probably weighing his option at this point, but even if it's just that three people, that's, that's, that's big. Not to dismiss, I think, is it Noel uh, Ginsburg who's uh, looking to do it. Looking at these two primaries right now, what are your thoughts? I don't think anyone's going to clear any fields. There's no Cory Gardner in the race that is going to part the waters and have other people drop out. Walker Stapleton has, has been angling for this governor's race for a long time. I think you're going to have a classic Republican race between sort of the insider, the 17th Street insider, incumbent state treasurer, and Walker Stapleton. George Brockler, who can also be an insider, but he's going to wear the outsider clothing all the way. I think Brockler perhaps enjoys some advantages there, but in terms of whether anyone is going to be, either primary is going to be more civil than the other, I don't know that any, either of them are going to be terribly civil, but I would never bet against the Republicans getting down and dirty just given the nature of some of the players in that party. 
any party that houses Dudley Brown can probably be assured of a, a fairly down and dirty primary where, wherever the Dudley Browns of the world uh, end up on this. I think the other really noteworthy thing is the level of talent in this race. We've had other gubernatorial elections in the state where maybe one party has an interesting primary or one party has a deep talent pool, but not both parties at the same time. Here you get the sense both parties have a deep bench, a deep talent pool, uh, and, and very capable, not only capable potential governors, but capable candidates and politicians. It's going to be wild. Let it get going. Natasha, when it came to the presidential campaign last year, Bernie did really well in Colorado. I'm not sure if we have the typical Bernie Democrat, but we certainly had a lot of feel the burn energy. Are the Democratic candidates in this gubernatorial primary going to need to tap into some of that to be successful in a competitive field? Well, one of the things that I think is interesting about this race is that it's been a long time since we've tested this position on a statewide level. And meanwhile, Colorado has truly changed, whether it's sort of fill the burn by the number of people who've entered the state, this, this question of are we truly purple, are we somewhere in between, will we sway back and forth, those are unknowns that I think are going to, to be more cemented or at least more firmed up with, with this particular race. One of the things I find interesting as I'm looking at the, the field on both sides is you have a lot of experience. Um, some of that is political, some of that is in different sectors. But there's not a ton of comparisons between them. They stand out in different ways. What for me is actually the, the common theme among them is that they're very front-range focused. They're very, in particular, Denver Metro focused. And this is a statewide position. So while the old maxim of you have to win the, the Western Slope isn't doesn't hold true in the same way that it once did, you still have to win the state. So we'll see how how these candidates really reach out to other parts of the state, whether that's the slope or whether that's the eastern plains, um, you know, any any corner of this state has to be involved in this election, and it's critical to how they would then governor, govern at the Capitol. So this is their chance to pull together that support. Let's see if, if any of them can do it. Patty, among the Democrats we know about right now, the, the three, the big names, you have uh, Michael Johnston breaking records with fundraising. You have Ed Perlmutter, who is a fierce campaigner and has done well in a, in a closely uh, balanced district. And you have Kerry Kennedy, who has won statewide when she ran for treasurer. Who has the advantage? I think it's too early to tell. It's interesting that Mike Johnston jumped in even when he people still thought Ken Salazar was going to run, and he wanted to get that lead in fundraising, so it looks like he is a strong, strong candidate. But with the, uh, the other two are great candidates, too. I mean, they're good debaters. They're smart. Any, th any one of the three of them would be good governors. I don't think we've, we're done seeing who is coming in in the Republican Party, either, so that we could have more than two strong candidates there. We, we're still hearing the name Cynthia Kaufman. So we could have just this amazing array of talent compared to, say, to the, uh, the senatorial race last year, where the Republicans definitely had a paucity of that. So we're kind of looking at the next generation of leaders who, if they don't win this round, might still come back again. The governors of Colorado, Alaska, Oregon, and Washington sent a joint letter, no pun intended, to Attorney General <laughs> Jeff Sessions this week requesting the Trump administration consult with them prior to making recreational to uh, change, making changes to recreational marijuana regulations, citing that overall overhauling the coal memo, which was established in 2013 to assist states in regulation, could produce unintended and harmful consequences. Eric, usually a letter written by or signed by four different governors would carry a lot of weight. But considering the recipient, what do you think? 
I think you had a lot, little too much fun writing that question <laughs> and, setting up the, and setting up the pun, uh, <laughs> Dominic. Uh, I'm not sure Jeff Sessions, you know, just stopped his day in his tracks when that letter uh, came over uh, came over the email. Uh, you know, I think attorney generals get letters like this all the time. What's fascinating to me about this issue is I sense probably a philosophical divide within the Trump administration between Jeff Sessions and perhaps Donald Trump. Trump, who hasn't really played his hands on the marijuana issues. But he's more of a libertarian, live and let live kind of guy on a lot of these personal liberty issues. And Jeff Sessions is anything but. So I don't know if ultimately Jeff Sessions is going to be making these calls or if these calls are going to get made from the White House and where the call gets made may determine where, what direction it goes. Natasha, do you think we can see more collaboration between the states if there's somewhat of a threat from D.C. on this issue? I think threat is the key word there, and yes, I think there will be more collaboration. Uh, you know, it's kind of the Colorado mellow at attitude towards politics sometimes, um, and I think that relates to marijuana. That people, whether they support it or don't, they haven't been as activated to, say, get on the streets and really talk about it. Um, but if there was a true threat of this industry going away, which has a major impact on our tourism, but also our economy just as a whole, right? now. I think Coloradans would get activated in the same way that people in other states where this is, exists would get activated as well, and we'd find some common ground. Petty, medical marijuana is over in, a, in over a majority of American states. Recreational marijuana is still less than 10. Is there enough of a group to fight off real threatening regulation from D.C.? Depending on how that regulation came down, you would hope D.C. had bigger things to worry about right now than states making some of their own laws, which they are allowed to do under states' rights. Twenty-eight states now have medical marijuana, and there are more coming, considering it all the time. People have widely accepted how useful it is for to help with a number of ailments. And the fact is there haven't been any disasters with recreational marijuana being legal in any of these four states either. So let's hope they abide by the Cole Memo, which basically is allowing live and let live. It's not a priority to feds to prosecute in states where it's legal. Let's hope D.C. pays attention to bigger issues. David, the likelihood of the Cole Memo stays the, at least the advice of, advice of the land. Well, hopefully uh, Trump follows his campaign promises and the United States Constitution, because the only congressional authority over marijuana, supposedly, is based on the power to regulate commerce among the several states. Commerce, as was understood when this was ratified, is buying and selling stuff. Commerce doesn't include agriculture, manufacturing, or mining. Those are things that precede commerce. So the cultivation of marijuana within a single state is no legitimate interest of the federal government and commerce among the several states. Yes, if you have marijuana in Colorado and you bring it outside of Colorado for sale, Congress absolutely has the ability to severely punish that, but not commerce within the state. So Jeff Sessions and Senator Trump, President Trump and everybody else should follow the original meaning of the Constitution and recognize that Congress has no authority to prohibit intrastate cultivation or commerce in marijuana. Let's get to our favorite part of the show, Disgrace of the Week. As always, Ms. Calhoun, please start us off. I would like to issue a personal apology to anyone who was stuck on Spirit Boulevard going north on Wednesday afternoon when my car broke down and blocked traffic for some time. Spirit Boulevard is bad enough, and I apologize for adding to the dilemma. <laughs> David. 
Susan Rice, who has apparently lives in an alternative reality, she was the one who said that the Al Qaeda attack on the U.S. Embassy on 9/11 uh, was caused by some video on YouTube. She's most recently said she had no idea what uh, Nunes was talking about about administration officials uh, unmasking wiretaps of. Uh, incoming Trump people, except now it turns out she was the one who did the unmasking. And she also told us in January of, of this year that uh, the Obama administration had verified that Syria had gotten rid of all of its chemical weapons. Um, rice reality and real reality are apparently are two very different things. Eric. Bill O'Reilly, take a bow. Uh, awful behavior over many, many years, and for this to come forward during National Sex Sexual Assault Awareness Month is particularly telling. I think Donald Trump might, speaking of Washington and having better things to do, maybe Donald Trump had better things to do this week than to try to come to O'Reilly's defense. Natasha. The state of roads in America, not related to Patty's uh, car trouble, but with the Atlanta Bridge collapse, um, KUNC had a great report recently about the, the continued efforts to repair the roads from the 2013 flooding. Um, and just driving around town, you see it. It's going to be something we pay for for a long time. And Estes Park is uh, dealing with another closure uh, this, this summer, speaking of roads. Uh, see something nice about somebody? Patty. Hope springs eternal. It's opening day for the Colorado Rockies, a beautiful day. It's great seeing what's going on downtown. Everyone's happy. Downtown is booming. Until we lose our first game, it's very nice. <laughs> David. My wife, Deirdre, we celebrated our 30th wedding anniversary this week. And think of all you folks in, in TV land who put up with me for 30 minutes a week and may find it challenging. <laughs> Imagine her for 30 years in real life. What an accomplishment. Indeed. Eric. I think we should reti retire to say something nice and just give it to Deirdre. Uh, that, that is yeoman's work here. <laughs> I'll go with sports as well. The Rockies, uh, whether it's this year or next year, it's coming soon. The Rockies are going to make life interesting in this town. There's a deep talent uh, reserve there. Things are going to get interesting. And it pains me to say this as a loyal Colorado College Tiger fan. But the DU Pioneers are in the national championship game tomorrow night, and I wish them well. Natasha. I'll, I'll round it up with sports as well for opening day, but because it always reminds me of how much transformation that stadium brought to the downtown area and to this city. And as a great reminder how we build our cities, how we plan for the future, we need big ideas, we need big changes, we need, we need those right now. You're here. That is all the time we have tonight. Thanks for tuning in. In a little over 10 days, Channel 12 is excited to bring some very intriguing international comedies to our primetime lineup. Starting April 18th, the cult hit The IT Crowd runs at 8 p.m., followed by Arab Labor, produced out of Israel, following the life of an Arab journalist living in Jerusalem. You won't want to miss them. As always, check out the CIO podcast on iTunes and Google Play and our segments from the show on Facebook and Twitter. For everyone here at Colorado Public Television, I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Thanks for watching. Good night.